to others to live out the faith? No doubt most of you in here would probably certainly answer, well, no, no, it's not harmful, and it's not bad for society. I'm sure that the majority of you in here would probably answer in that way. But is that the answer that the world would give us? In previous decades, Christianity has been viewed as irrelevant within our society. But increasingly, many non-religious people are now saying that it's actually bad for society. Not just irrelevant, but bad. According to a Barna Group study done in 2016, millions of adults are no longer saying that Christianity is irrelevant, but that it's even extremist. In fact, the research showed that nearly half of non-religious adults perceive Christianity as extremists. And when asked to label which religious activities they perceive to be extreme, 50 to 79% of U.S. adults said that seeking to convert people to the faith, praying out loud for a stranger in public, delivering religious material door-to-door, that those activities were extreme. 20 to 49% said that quitting your job to pursue mission work in another country was somewhat extreme. And in 6 to 19% said that attending church and reading your Bible silently in public are extreme. Now, you may hear these statistics, and you may be concerned about Christianity's influence in society. You may even wonder if this is a new phenomenon, one in which Christians haven't experienced ever before. But as we'll see in our text today, this perception is really nothing new at all. It's nothing new. In fact, the Apostle Paul faced the same thing. In the court of public opinion, many viewed Paul and his faith as bad for society, that it was harmful. So is Christianity bad for society? Or is it exactly what our society needs in every generation? What should we remember when labels are thrown around about Christianity? And how should we respond when those labels are given? Those are just some of the things that we're going to consider today in our text. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Today we're back in the book of Acts. We're right in the middle of Paul's trial narrative. And in chapter 21, Paul entered Jerusalem not as a celebrity, but as a menace. The Jews were falsely accusing him of preaching a message against their people, against their law, against their temple. Basically, everything that they found to be their identity, they thought that Paul was against. And as Paul is taken into custody, he finds himself progressively testifying to people with greater position and power. In chapter 22, Paul testifies to the risen Jesus before a Jewish Jewish mob in Jerusalem who are hollering out, Get rid of him. Wipe him off the face of the earth. In chapter 23, the Roman commander Lysias has Paul stand trial before the religious supreme court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. And as Paul is almost torn apart for saying that he's being judged because of the hope of the resurrection, the Roman commander saves his life. He delivers him. And the following night, Jesus stands by Paul. And tells Paul that he's not only going to testify to Jesus in Jerusalem, but he's also going to testify to Jesus even in Rome. And for the rest of the book, 
we see the gospel on this Roman road of sorts. And Paul has no idea how in the world he's going to get to Rome, except that he knows that Jesus told him that he's going to get there. No idea. All that would come. And what we see in the rest of the book is a wild ride of Paul testifying to the resurrected Jesus at different stops along that Roman road where the stakes just keep getting higher and higher and higher because Paul keeps preaching the gospel to people with greater power and position. And that's how we come to chapter 24. Imagine this being God's plan for your life. It was for Paul's. Nearly missing death regularly to testify to the next powerful person up on the list. But Jesus' call on his life meant way more than any comfort that he would ever receive for conceding the truth of the gospel. And that's what we're going to see from Paul today. So let's read Acts chapter 24. Acts 24. Follow along as I read. Five days later, Ananias the high priest came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, We enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. For we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack alleging that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, Because I I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify yourself that it's no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me arguing with anybody or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges that they are now bringing against me. But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God in men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. While I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd and without any uproar. It's they who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement, I shouted while standing among them. Today I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. Since Felix was well informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing, saying, 
When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom, and that he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, Leave for now, but when I have opportunity, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would offer him money. So he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. After two years had passed, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. I think the main idea that Luke is getting at in Acts 24 is this. That real Christianity keeps preaching Jesus when others label it a plague. Real Christianity keeps preaching Jesus when others label it a plague. I think that's the point of the text. That real Christianity keeps preaching Jesus when others label it a plague. And in our text, we see really the three parts of this trial highlight this very point. Right? We get the accusations that are brought forward. We get Paul's defense. And then we get the verdict. And so in point number one, we're going to see a bogus accusation because that's what it is in verses 1 to 9. It's a bogus accusation. And then in point two, we're going to look at a bold defense that Paul gives in verses 10 to 21. And then finally, we're going to look at a delayed verdict in verses 22 to 27 at the end of the chapter, a delayed verdict. So point number one, let's first look at this bogus accusation. This trial takes place five days after Paul arrives in Caesarea. Now, you might remember how he got there, right? The Roman commander, Lysias, delivers Paul from a plot to kill him, and he actually provides a security detail that rivals the president of the United States. 470 of his strongest soldiers delivering Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea, all to put him up in posh accommodations in Herod's palace. And yes, That's exactly where Felix lives, Paul in Felix's residence. Now, when Paul's accusers arrive, we know this is an important trial because Ananias is there. Ananias is the high priest, and he even thought it was necessary to make the 65-mile trek north from Jerusalem to Caesarea to be present for this. It wasn't enough just to run Paul out of Jerusalem. No, they wanted to get rid of Paul for good. And so even Ananias is at this trial, and he's not alone. He's got his posse with him, his entourage. And most importantly for this trial, the Jewish leadership have paid a a lawyer, an attorney, to represent them named Tertullus. Tertullus was a professional speaker. He got paid to make persuasive arguments. And so in this scene, we've got legal power, intellectual power, and religious power, monetary power, going up against one innocent man. But Paul wasn't alone because he had the man by his side. He had the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But before Tertullus presents their case, it was customary to offer praise to the judge. But Tertullus overdoes it. 
He starts lavishing on the praise and buttering Felix up. He takes it to a whole new level, and he pours the flattery on Felix. Look at all the compliments that he gives. Look at verse 22 that he gives to Felix. Felix, we enjoy great peace because of you. Reforms are taking place for the nation's benefit because of your foresight. Now, what's interesting right there is that that word foresight, behind that word is actually the word providence. It's providence. Israel's leaders are ascribing to a Roman governor what ought to be ascribed to God. That's how far they've come. God is the only one in the book of Acts who is described as having foresight and providence. If that wasn't enough, Tertullus then exaggerates. Even further in verse 3, look at verse 3. We acknowledge this in every way, everywhere. Most excellent Felix, and with utmost gratitude. Everything is over the top. He is straight up schmoozing Felix right here. A master ego stroker is Tertullus, and he is stroking it just to curry favor with Felix. And yet all this flattery is absolutely false. As the funny joke goes, how can you tell when a lawyer is lying? When he's moving his lips by the lawyer in the front row. That's right. But Hudson, we know that you don't lie. Praise God for that, brother. But this is certainly the case for Tertullus, though. He lies. Because Felix was anything anything but a commendable governor. (laughs) He was terrible. The Jews hated him. He did not bring peace to the people. He was a brutal leader who was not benevolent. But he was known for taking bribes. I mean, what do we see him do at the end of this chapter but trying to get bribes from Paul? Like, hey, I'll let you off easy, you know, if you just give me some money. Let me keep hearing that gospel. I need to rake it up. Obviously, Paul doesn't do that. But not only was this flattery a lie, all of these accusations against Paul were a lie as well. Tertullus knows that in order to win this case, he has got to get Paul against Paul. Felix. He knows that. He's smart. He's good at what he does. He's a good attorney. So he presents a political argument that makes Paul a threat to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Paul is not in favor of these things. He's actually a threat to your own peace. He says that we found Paul to be a plague or a troublemaker or pest an agitator who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the Roman world. To them, Paul was an international terrorist. Legitimately. He was an international terrorist. Felix had to take this seriously. Because causing riots or rebellion was a capital offense in the Roman Empire. He could not just let this off the hook, if this is true. Not only that, but they accused Paul of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. This was important because Jews were protected by the state to practice their religion. Christianity was not, or this sect of the Nazarenes was not protected. It was an attempt to get this new sect outlawed before Rome. And finally, they accused Paul of desecrating the temple. The Jewish temple was also protected by Rome, and so to desecrate it was a rejection of Roman rule, and not only just a rejection of Roman rule, it was also a rejection of God and against God's own law. To make matters worse, the Jews joined in the attack against Paul. 
Those who were his people, of whom he was once a leader, a Pharisee among, are now ganging up against him. Paul is surrounded. Surrounded by his own people. Surrounded by bogus accusations. And at the mercy of a pagan leader. The situation looks grim. But the reality is is that we've actually seen this all before. We've seen this all before. Luke records a very similar trial with Jesus before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate in Luke 23, verses 1 to 5. The Jewish leadership hand Jesus over to Pilate to be tried. They accuse him of what? Misleading the people, opposing Caesar, saying that he is the Messiah, a king, who would have been in direct opposition to Caesar as king, making political arguments. And after questioning Jesus, Pilate says that he's innocent. But the Jewish leadership kept insisting that he what? Stirs up people, teaching all throughout Judea. Lies and exaggerations. Similar accusations, similar people. This is nothing new. If Jesus the Messiah endured false accusations and Paul the apostle to the Gentiles did as well, then we should not be surprised when Christians are labeled extremists. When people think that Christianity is somehow bad for society, we shouldn't be surprised by that. That Christians seem to be homophobic or that they denigrate women or that they're judgmental, right? All these labels thrown around about Christianity. That should not surprise us when people throw those labels around. Gone are the days when being a Christian gained you some level of respect in society. Now, they might in the deep south in certain places, but not, that's not the case for the majority of the U.S. now. And as we see in our text, faithful Christians are well acquainted with false accusations. They're well acquainted with them. And if we're not careful, these quick, unsubstantiated labels that get thrown around on social media can either rock your faith or they can lead you to rage against the world that is in need of faith. That's where it can lead you, to those polar opposites, neither of which is godly. And so I think it's helpful for us to remember a couple of characteristics that accusations often take against biblical Christianity that can actually help us from being and prevent us from actually going to those those two places, of being rocked by them and also raging against them. Two things. Number one, I think we have to remember what these accusations are. They're false. They're false. Understand, we're not speaking about those who say that they're Christians, but they live contrary to that name. We're not talking about those who do such a thing and actually give Christianity a bad name because they say they're believers when in reality their life does not line up with their profession. That is not who we are talking about. We're talking about true biblical Christianity objectively, according to the scriptures. Anywhere that there are faithful Christians, many will twist the truth to undermine their witness. It is far easier to cancel someone and to curry favor with others by slapping a label on them rather than actually entering into a dialogue or a debate. Far easier to do that and to gain a crowd. The Jews labeled Paul an agitator when in reality their own people stirred up riots against him. It was they that were doing these things. 
And when false accusations are made, oftentimes, there's an element of exaggeration. There's an element of exaggeration. So not only are they false, but they're exaggerated. They're exaggerated. Paul isn't just an agitator, but he is one who stirs up riots where? Throughout the Roman world. Not just here, but throughout the Roman world. Shortly after I became a believer my freshman year of college, I started sharing the gospel with other guys in my fraternity. And my sweet mate, who lived just across uh, the bathroom from me, went around telling guys in the house that they didn't need to listen to me because I was Jim Jones trying to get them to drink the Kool-Aid for sharing the gospel with them. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit like an exaggeration. Just a little bit. He didn't want lives to be changed so that people left the fraternity way of life. No, he wanted people to join in with him. And for one of his sweet mates to be going around telling people about Jesus who will radically transform their lives so that they leave that fraternity way of life, he didn't like that very much. So not only did he lie, he also exaggerated. He exaggerated. Brothers and sisters, this may happen to you if it hasn't already. It may happen to you at some point. It may happen in the workplace. It may happen among your family members, of which you don't have a great relationship with. And it will certainly happen online if you just look close enough. The world will view you like a play because its standard of morality is coming up against God's standard of morality. And it will view you like a plague. Their understanding of identity will completely undermine God's of understanding, of identity, and who we are fundamentally. And sadly, those who label Christianity falsely, they do the very thing that they actually claim. That's often the case. They do the thing that they claim. What's bad for society are false accusations and unsubstantiated labels to score points in quick clicks. That's what's bad for society. Yet the real plague, that few want to own is that of sin in the heart of man that is opposed to God in his ways. It's opposed to God in his ways. And the only one who has the cure to this plague is the one that they falsely accused. The one who took that plague of sin upon himself and actually paid for it through his own death on the cross. That's the cure to this plague. What's bad for society is calling that cure a plague. So brothers and sisters, it's better eternally, far better, to be seen as a plague in the world's eyes than that of God's for rejecting Christ. It is far better. Better a plague before the world than before God. It's one thing to know what form opposition will take. But how do we respond? Do we just kind of assimilate to the culture and just go with it? Do we retreat and isolate from it to try to create a a pure society away from the big bad world? Paul does neither of those things. Point number two, a bold defense, verses 10 to 21. A bold defense. The first thing that we notice is that Paul addresses Felix differently than Tertullus. He acknowledges Felix's position, but he doesn't lavish and heap praise on Felix. 
He's grateful to be present, to, to present his defense, but he's not ingratiating himself to Felix. Paul respects Felix's authority without actually compromising his own integrity. That's what he's doing. And so he's not trying to curry his favor because he understands that a higher judge actually stands over this trial. One who has called him to this purpose, who has told him that he's going to testify in Rome. And friends, this is a reminder for us that as we stand as faithful Christians in the court of public opinion, the only opinion and verdict that will stand in the end is ultimately God's. It's ultimately God's opinion. It's his verdict that is going to stand in the end. And as Paul gives his defense, he's not only making an argument for his innocence, but he's also arguing for the innocence of Christianity. And he handles each accusation in turn. So we saw three accusations come against Paul. Paul handles them in turn with his defense. In verses 11 to 13, he addresses the claim that he's an agitator throughout the Roman world. In verses 14 to 16, he responds to the second accusation of him being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And in verses 17 and 18, he he speaks to the allegation of desecrating the temple. So Paul's not an agitator. Yes, he's a ringleader, but this is no sect of the Nazarenes. And he did not desecrate the temple. And there are important lessons in each of his defenses that he gives for each of these that we're going to see. So let's look at Paul's first response. In verses 12 to 13, Paul says that none of his accusers can actually prove any of their claims. They're all bogus. He says, they didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or anywhere in the city. Paul is calling their bluff. He knows they can't prove anything because, they've, because I've not done what they've said is effectively what Paul says. Even the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, said back in chapter 22, if you look back there at verse 29, actually it's chapter 23, verse 29, that no charge was brought against Paul that merited death or imprisonment. I mean, even a Roman commander knows this, that the main issue between Paul and the Jewish leaders is theological. He can tell that. It all has to do with their law. And what we've seen throughout the book of Acts is that it's not Paul who causes civil unrest. It's not Paul who causes civic unrest in these cities throughout his missionary journeys. Let's think about some of these. It wasn't Paul in Philippi in chapter 16, but the greedy businessmen who lost profit due to their slave girl being transformed by the gospel. Talk about bad for society, enslaving and making profit off of that. It wasn't Paul in Thessalonica or Berea in chapter 17, but Jewish Thessalonians in Berea. It was jealous Thessalonian Jews that were at fault. It wasn't Paul in Ephesus in chapter 19, but Demetrius, you remember Demetrius, who caused an uproar in the city after getting all of his shrine-making friends together, who made shrines for the, Art- for, uh, the goddess Artemis, causing an uproar within the city because they were losing money from their business because of Paul's preaching of the gospel. Now, I could go on, but you get the idea. All throughout Acts, Luke is making it clear that Paul and Christianity itself is innocent. In fact, in one sense, I think Acts actually serves as an apologetic or a defense of Christianity. 
that this is the real deal. This is the genuine article. This is the real McCoy, however you want to talk about it in your own lingo. As we see right here with Paul's accusers calling the way a sect, many thought Christianity was politically treasonous during Paul's day. It was a revolutionary movement. And that's part of what Paul is actually arguing against right here with the sect of the Nazarenes. And so this is the first lesson that I think that we can learn from this. That objectively, Christianity is not political treason. Christians aren't political rebels who cause civic unrest and violence, but instead we're law-abiding citizens so long as those laws don't interfere with God's. True biblical Christianity is innocent. Not the kind, like the Crusades that labeled themselves such and then slaughtered Jews all throughout the empire. That's not true biblical Christianity. The book of Acts shows us what is biblical Christianity. But how do you know? How do you know what Christianity looks like? Paul shows us by what he believes and how he lives. Look at how he sets this up. In verses 14 to 16, Paul addresses the claim that he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. They were called the Nazarenes because of their leader, Jesus, was from Nazareth. And Paul confesses that he doesn't worship the God, or that he does worship the God of the ancestors according to the way. But this way isn't some heretical sect. It's actually the real deal. That's the argument that he's making. I love the way that John Stott, the former English minister, put it on these verses in 14 and 15. He says that Paul is making the point that he worships the same God as them, loves the same truth as them, shared the same hope as them, and cherished the same ambition as them. But there's one key difference between Paul and them. And that's Jesus the Messiah. Paul understands Jesus the Messiah to be the fulfillment of all of it, of all of their beliefs. He's the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament, which is shorthand, law and prophets, all pointed to Jesus. He's the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the seed of the serpent from Genesis 3.15. He's the offspring of Abraham by whom all the nations are going to be blessed. Genesis 15. He's the prophet that's greater than Moses, the better high priest who has offered the sacrifice of himself once for all time to pay for sins. He's the blessed man of Psalm 1, the prince of peace of Isaiah 9, and the shepherd king of Micah that I've already preached through just a couple of months ago. That's who Jesus is. And our hope doesn't lie with the things of this world, but with the one who defeated sin through his own death and resurrection. The one who defeated sin through his death, and he conquered death by rising from death to life. That's who we believe in. And because of his resurrection, Jesus has got authority to be able to judge between the righteous and the wicked, the righteous and the unrighteous here in the text. As we heard from Jesus in John 5, 24, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Friends, if you have repented of your sins, 
and you have heard Jesus' word and believe it, then at the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But if you haven't, then the consequence is serious. You won't enter into the joy of your master, but into the misery of eternal punishment. Friend, Paul is saying that the gospel he preaches is the real deal, and it reaps the real reward and hope of eternal life. That's what he's saying. So will you turn from your sin and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior so that on that resurrection day you may not enter into eternal death and condemnation, but that ultimately you would enter into the presence of Christ who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The lesson for the Christians in the room is that this truth ought to actually give you confidence when you have conversations with coworkers, when you have conversations within our own community at the farmer's market, or when you share a holiday meal with family members. It ought to give you confidence that Jesus rose from the dead and to be able to speak of him. When the world labels you a bigot or says that Christianity is outdated, you don't have to be embarrassed because on that resurrection day, you're not the one who is going to be put to shame. You can have confidence. You don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel in the words of Paul. So brothers and sisters, when you hear labels thrown around in our culture about Christianity, does that embarrass you? Does it unsettle you a little bit? Like, could that be true? Does it make you want to join the way of the world in order to better fit in? Or does it make you want to retreat and not actually even enter into that conversation because you fear where it may go? Paul does neither. He boldly instead makes his stand and confesses faith in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's what he does. This is one of the reasons why we have a strong church confession, why we recite creeds and catechisms. That's what Paul is doing here. He is confessing that Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And when we do these things, we're saying that we stand in line with a long history of Christians who stand in orthodox faith in sound doctrines. That's why we do those things, why we do the reciting of the catechism every month, why we have creeds and confessions. That's why we recite those. And ultimately, you can know that you're the real deal Christian when you believe these things and when your life aligns with what you believe. That we are the real deal biblically because we align with the historic faith that's rooted in Jesus, the Messiah. That's what Paul is saying. And anybody who aligns with that can say the same thing. And so let that reorient how you maybe think about the New City Catechism whenever we do it at the end of every month. It gives us greater meaning. It gives that greater meaning and that time of reciting the catechism together greater meaning. Paul and the gospel that he proclaims is the real deal because Jesus is the center of it all and we align with Jesus. So how do you know Christianity is legit? How do you know it's legit? Yes, because of what we believe, but there's another aspect to that. It's also what Christianity or that faith produces. 
in the lives of its people. Let's look at verses 17 and 18 as Paul answers the final allegation. Contrary to being a religious pretender or even a troublemaker, Paul is pious. He's a godly man. So he's not a pretender or an agitator. He's the complete opposite of what they're accusing him of. He didn't come to Jerusalem to start riots, but what did he do there in verse 17? He came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to the people. And then in verse 18, the Jews in Asia didn't find him unclean in the temple. They actually found him richly purified in the temple. And if they have charges against him, well, they need to be here present in order to present these arguments and these allegations against him, right? which was normal Roman practice. In order to be able to present a case or charges, you had to be present. Paul is better than Tertullus at his own job. And so Paul is making the claim that he is innocent. Because not only are his beliefs in line with God's will, but so is his life. His life's in line with God. He practices what he preaches. So much so that in verse 16, he says that he strives to have a clear conscience before God and men. Brothers and sisters, can we say the same thing for ourselves? That we strive to have a clear conscience before God and men. Can we say the same thing about our own lives? Can our families say that about our lives? That we practice what we preach. Would coworkers say that you practice what you preach? That yes, you proclaim to be a Christian, but I can clearly see also that you are a believer. It's very evident. Do we say that we believe in a big God, but we store up treasure on earth in all the myriad of ways that we do that? What are we living for? Do we care or do we declare that Jesus is our good portion and yet we have our eyes stuck on sexually promiscuous material? Think about how that doesn't line up. Treasuring Jesus as our good portion versus viewing things that We ought not to view. In verse 21, Paul tells everyone the real reason that he's on trial. It's because of the resurrection of the dead. He's on trial for the resurrection of the dead. He says, I'm innocent. Look at my my faith. Look at my life. Why? Because Jesus got up from the grave. Because of the resurrection of the dead. And brothers and sisters, it's the resurrection that actually motivates godly living when you think about those questions that were just asked. It's the resurrection that is the fuel to godly living because Jesus' resurrection guarantees our own. That's why. And believing that is going to change your life because you've been raised to walk in newness of life if you are in Christ. Knowing that Christ has been raised is going to motivate you to live a resurrected life right here, right now. The resurrection keeps you from raging against those who've wronged you because you know that ultimately Jesus is going to judge in the end because he is the resurrected and reigning Lord. The resurrection keeps you from retreating or even assimilating to the way of the world because this life is not all that there is. No sense in trying to just accumulate here and now. There's something far better than that to come because Christ has been raised. The resurrection motivates you to godly living because you are preparing 
for an eternity that's worth the weight of these earthly trials right now. It is worth the wait. We heard from Austin about that this past Wednesday night. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is how you know that you're not a religious pretender. It's how you know that. But instead, you're in line with God's plan in historic Christianity. You're the real deal, the real McCoy. And because of that, re- because of that resurrection, we keep on preaching. That's how we interact. We don't retreat nor do we try to assimilate, but instead we keep on preaching. Point number three, a delayed verdict. Point number three, a delayed verdict. After Paul presents his defense, Felix decides to postpone the verdict until Lysias, the Roman commander, uh, can actually get back for it until he returns. But ultimately we know the real reason that Felix postpones the verdict. You can see that there uh, in verse 27. He wants to use Paul for his own political advantage. He's hoping to get a little bit of money off of Paul in order to try to get out early. But then he's also, in verse 27, trying to appease the Jews. He'll do whatever he can for his own selfish gain. (laughs) This is ridiculous. And this chapter ends quite negatively. It ends negatively. Look at the last line right there. Paul was left in prison. Pretty negative. Suffering under the weight of Felix's injustice. To add to this, look at the beginning of verse 27. How long was Paul in prison for? Over two years until Felix left and Festus came. When Jesus told Paul that he would testify in Rome, he did not tell him how or when he would ever get to Rome. But that eventually, Paul would get to Rome, though he didn't know how. When we read Acts, we can get the impression that all of this action just happened one time after another. We're just going from trial to trial to trial to trial. We're going from missionary journey to missionary journey to missionary journey. It's high action packed. Crazy things are happening to Paul. Is that Paul's just moving from place to place to the next crazy story after the next crazy story. But it's not like that. And we need to be realistic readers of the Bible. We need to remember verse 27. One verse, two years. One verse, two years. And brothers and sisters, it's a reminder For us, I think, when we face trials, we're not told how long or when they will end. Instead, we're called to be faithful no matter what season that we're in. Sometimes those seasons are long. Sometimes those seasons are short. But in the waiting, we need to remember that we always have Jesus' promise that we will get there in the end. Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. Brothers and sisters, Christ is going to return, and you are going to make it home. And you will get there in the end. And as we wait in these trials, there is still great work that is to be done. Though Paul may be labeled a plague, though his verdict is postponed, 
What continues? Preaching Jesus. Preaching Jesus continues. Paul has been the one on trial, but now what does he do? He puts Felix and his wife, Jerusalem, on trial. And Luke gives us an inside look at what Paul talked about in verses 24 to 26. Look there. It says that Paul spoke on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. All that to say that Paul effectively preached the gospel to them, and Luke is giving us a summary of what he talked about. Now, we know that whenever he was with them, more than likely he went on to greater extent on those various topics or those various aspects of the gospel. But Luke is highlighting these aspects for a reason. Or else Luke could have just said, yeah, Paul preached the gospel to Felix in Jerusalem. He could have just said that. But he's highlighting these aspects for a reason. It was well known at the time that Felix and Jerusalem's marriage was rooted in adultery and betrayal. He lured her away from her husband when she was 16. It was well known. Jerusalem was his third wife. This was her second husband. Now, some will, t- will tell us not to speak on topics like what, what Paul was talking on, right? That's just bad evangelism. That's just not wise evangelism. You don't need to speak about these topics when you're presenting Christ. But for Paul, though, it's no problem at all. He tailors his message to his audience. They needed to be confronted with what happens to those who don't turn to Jesus in faith and who are declared righteous in God's eyes and who live self-controlled lives that in the end, they will face judgment. And so he confronts them where they're at so that Felix becomes, in effect, afraid. He's alarmed. And what Paul is saying. And he actually tells Paul to leave to a further time where they will discuss these things. And just like Felix postpones making a decision about Paul, so he postpones making a decision about Jesus. But friends, God does not postpone his verdict upon us. Outside of Jesus, we are all presently guilty before God which is why we need to preach the hard parts of the gospel, not only to ourselves, but also to others. Paul was not afraid to preach an alarming message because sometimes people need an alarm in order to wake up from being dead in their sin. Who might be someone in your life right now that you need to have a hard conversation with? Who would be open to having this conversation, much like Felix in Jerusalem. Who is that person in your life that needs that hard conversation? It might be that you ask them to read the Bible with you. You walk them through maybe some difficult passages with various things that they are grappling with. Paul understands what's going on with this couple. And he takes those hot-button issues right to them. He does that, obviously, in love. And I'm sure many of you who are here have been on the receiving end of those conversations, and you're grateful for those who have actually had those conversations with you. Praise God, you probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those who actually had those hard conversations with you. So who might be somebody that you need to have that conversation with? Maybe you're one, though, who actually needs to hear this message. You need a hard message to you. Friend, recognize that though earthly kings and governors may delay a verdict, God has not. That because of your sin, 
You stand condemned before God right now. But there is great news for you that your guilty verdict can actually be lifted up off of you because Christ has taken that guilty verdict upon himself and he has paid for the penalty of that sin. It's by turning from your sin and trusting in him that you can have that guilty verdict lifted off of you. It's only through faith in Jesus that you can be declared righteous before God, live a life of self-control, and be saved from the judgment that is to come. Friend, don't postpone that decision. You can make that decision today. Don't be like Felix and postpone. If you want to chat after this, I'm more than happy to have a conversation with you about what that looks like for you. So is Christianity bad for society? Is Paul just another religious pretender? Paul says no. In fact, what he preaches and practices is right in line with God's plan because Jesus rose from the grave. Though Paul may be labeled a plague and his case postponed, he continues preaching Jesus, even when his message will be alarming to some. And so must we. Because real Christianity keeps preaching Jesus when others label it a plague. Will you continue to preach Christ? Let's pray together.